When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ava Stashnik about her latest novel, The School of Mirrors. Stashnik's previous novels have explored the lives of an empress, dancers, and a contemporary Polish emigre. In The School of Mirrors, she turns her attention to the events surrounding the French Revolution, from the reign of Louis XV to Robespierre and the Terror. The story, however, opens near its end point. Paris, 1793. She runs after the tumbling cart, her heart tripping, racing, tripping again. The morning is crisp, the sky eggshell blue. The streets are empty. Houses are shuttered, doors locked. Here and there, chimneys belch plumes of thick smoke. Traitors are burning their sins, she has heard. Madame Guillotine is not swift enough. The cart, pulled by a single horse, sways. The man on the cart, his once black hair streaked with gray, is holding fast to the side. His eyes follow her, not letting go, not for the shortest of moments. On the Quai d'Orsay, slippery from the night's rain, she glimpses an old bony woman huddling in the doorway. On the Pont de la Concorde, a hunchback beggar, a bulging sack flung across his chest, is poking through a pile of rags. In the Place de la Révolution, the cart slows. Around a scaffold, a small crowd has gathered. A child wails and is quickly hushed. A dog barks. She catches the glint of the blade and stops. And now, please join me in welcoming Eva Stoshnik. Hi, Eva. I look forward to talking with you today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it, too. The School of Mirrors is not far distant in time from your duology on Catherine the Great, which includes the Winter Palace and Empress of the Night, but it is distant in geographical terms and even even farther away from your novels about Bronislava Nijinska and Sophie Glavani. How do you choose the topics for your novels? I always have a feeling that uh, I am chosen to write a novel, that the character captures my imagination, and uh, and I go there. Uh, there is a pattern, perhaps, to that. You know, I can see that strong women attract me. Uh, women's voices attract me. In history, they have not been given the same amount of attention, perhaps, especially in the past, um, as male voices. So I, I, I like to tell their stories. I also, you know, I'm an image. I came to Canada over 40 years ago. It doesn't feel like I'm an immigrant anymore, but I am attracted to any character who has to live in a different culture. So Sophie Glavani, Greek woman living in 18th century Poland, Catherine the Great, a Prussian princess who ends up to be the Tsarina, Russian Tsarina, Bronia Nizinska, who is uh, such a mixture of ethnicities. And of course, she's most of all an artist, a, a, a wonderful choreographer. 
choreographer and dancer. So that's what I'm looking for. And in that sense, the School of Mirrors is a little bit of a departure for me because um, I am actually writing about two French women who are not leaving their country or their culture. And what drew you to that story of the Deer Park Girls on Louis XV? Well, there was a tiny Polish, little Polish window at the very beginning of it, because I always, I, I love reading memoirs and sources and voices, authentic voices of the of the, of the past. And I was going through um, pr- the private memoirs of Madame Diosette, uh, who is the lady's maid of Madame de Pompadour. And I come across a little passage that describes um, Madame de Pompadour calling her maid, uh, the king is present. There's a talk about a young girl who is pregnant who has to be taken care of, um, Madame Diosette immediately realizes that this is uh, has something to do with the king, that he's the father of the child. And then she hears the story that the girls don't, that the girl doesn't really know that the king is, uh, her, her lover is, um, that the king is her lover, and that the king presents himself as a Polish nobleman who comes to Versailles from time to time because he's a cousin of the queen. And at that time, of course, Marie Leszczyńska, a Polish noblewoman, is the king of France, is the, the queen of France. She's not very powerful. She's not um, really, she doesn't have that much influence at Versailles, but she's there. So he uses her as a cover for his uh, sexual activity. And that was, I couldn't, you know, that I read this passage several times and I thought, there's something about it that draws me. Uh, who was this girl? What was going on? I started researching, uh, came across the whole concept of Deer Park, that uh, very interesting uh, house in the uh, town of Versailles where the servants of the king kept young very poor but very beautiful girls on the chance that when the king wants, is bored enough, not interested in other women he might have um, he, he might have be attracted to you know maybe a night or two or some time spent with them and and I you know I found as much as I could in the sources in that really you know these stories of these girls very totally silent you know their voices are silent they they are talked about they are ne- they never talk I think that that was this uh, initial inspiration. I want to write about one of these Deer Park girls, one, the one who got pregnant, the one who attracted the king for more than just one night or a few nights and was married off or sent away. So that was the actual beginning. And that young girl in your novel is um, Véronique Roux. So who is she when the novel opens in 1755? Well, she is beautiful and she is uh, poor, which was a, a qualification for being one of the Deer Park girls. She's also very young. And uh, at that time, uh, the the people around the king, so his valet de chambre, Madame de Pompadour and others, they wanted um, to make sure that his sexual diversions do not involve you know, sort of serious relationships and especially not with powerful women, you know, so aristocratic women. So a poor, powerless girl, hopefully naive as well, so that he would be titillated, you know, that he can present himself as this sort of very handsome and very dashing man, uh, 
mysterious count from Poland and enjoy this dalliance with this young uh, girl, uh, you know, young woman by their standards. I mean, we have to keep proportions in terms of what was considered very young in the 14th, in the 18th century. But um, but that, that was what uh, this attracted Berenik. So she's poor. Her mother you know, the, the pattern is that she's she's coming from middle class that got impoverished. So the father was a printer, uh, died, left the family destitute. The family had some dreams and hopes. And therefore, this the mother is quite open to a proposition from the palace that the girl, her daughter can be taken away and given a better future because that's how it is presented. She realizes what it may involve but she also realizes that the palace is not going to leave her daughter destitute and therefore and also the family that her three sons can profit from it so she is sold in a sense to 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 the palace uh, but uh, because of poverty and because of dreams to do something about uh, about that uh, poverty and, and race in, in the society uh, she is um, literate she is uh, bright interested in the world. Uh, she wants a different world than, than the world of uh, selling used clothes like her mother has to. She, she has dreams and it all is sort of put, put together. It makes her a very, very attractive um, candidate for Gear Park. She's also fairly innocent, you know, so she does realize that the world is dangerous, but she herself has been kept away from it. She has not been in any way stained or sullied because that is one of the uh, conditions for a Deer Park girl, that they had to be innocent, they had to be pure, they could not have had any sexual relations or, um, and and that is tested and checked always for, so so I knew about that and and in a sense, you know, I, I following, uh, when I heard her voice, because that's how it happened, when I heard her speak and talk about how she found herself in, in Deer Park, I, I wanted to preserve that, um, you know, mixture of innocence and hope and and intelligence and passion and and at the same time, uh, naivete that in a young, uh, very young woman uh, will um, manifest itself very quickly. And she is quite young. She's 13 or 14 when she's first selected, which even for the 18th century was was fairly young. Yes, the age of consent was nine or ten, some well, ten in France at that point. And remember that uh, Catherine the Great was married at fourteen, so you know it, it was not unusual to for for young women, even aristocratic women, who had uh, means of survival, to be to, to to enter into marriage or other relationships. So yes, in that sense, we have to keep it in mind. So as you mentioned, the Marquise de Pompadour. Uh is part of this project, for lack of a better word. Um, for listeners who may not know her full history, fill us in, please, on her relationship with Louis XV at this point in time. Well, she's a very interesting woman. Um, she is um, she, from 1945 to 1951, so before we meet her in the novel, she was the mistress uh, of the king. She comes, she doesn't come from aristocracy. She's a bourgeois. She was pretty well off and uh, married when she met the king, fell in love with him. Her relationship with him is uh, is the relationship of love, mutual love and mutual respect. Uh, but 
it's not uh, it has its problems as a relationship uh, she madame de pompadour is um, uh, does not uh, have a very good sexual relationship with him and here i mean just health issues you know she has many miscarriages she has very painful she's you know intercourse is extremely painful for her and we we can we learn about that so um from from historical sources so as much as she loves the king and wants to be the most important woman in his life she also is at some point is not interested in in sex and she would like to be a friend and a confidant of the king well that opens the question of who is going to replace her in the king's bed and she doesn't want um, an aristocratic woman to replace her someone who could challenge her position at court she wants to keep that she wants to keep his confidence she wants to keep his friendship this loving friendship that they have and will have until her death so you know the idea of of procuring because that's the word these young powerless girls to satisfy him is very attractive to her. They are not going to endanger her position. They are not going to be a threat. Of course, he will never consider dropping uh, uh, Madame de Pompadour, uh, who who is um, such an important uh, person, and and she has influence, and she is she is um, she 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 cannot be challenged by Dominique. Sorry, she cannot be challenged by Veronique or any other girl that passes through uh, the, deer, uh, the deer park. So in that sense, it is very, very important to know that it was it worked to her advantage. And yet she kept an eye on it because there were, you know, we know from, from, uh, from uh, historical sources that at least one um, deer park girl um, called Le Meur, uh, she was, she was of Irish um, descent and she, O'Murphy was um, probably for about two years she had a relationship with the king. And at some point she was hoping she could oust Madame de Pompadour. And that, of course, ended in her immediate dismissal. And I do mention her in the novel, but very briefly. So so she had to keep an eye on these girls, you know, is and especially if any of them got pregnant because she wanted, uh, she didn't want any stories about the park to be repeated. She also didn't want to... Um, get the king involved in it too much. So she, she preferred to be in control. And I think that that's the, the moment we meet her in the novel. She is in control. She makes sure these, these girls are inciting, but not too inciting, not dangerous. <laughs> that sounds like a perfect summary of, of the school. When Veronique arrives, she encounters a pair of girls, uh, Francine, who becomes her friend, and Claire, whom she doesn't much like. There are not many girls in this house at, the, at one time, but there are several uh, being groomed for their position with the king. What can you tell us about Francine and Claire? Um, Francine is, uh, you know, I, I read a, a lot about the kind of girls that, that, that were brought there. And I, out of all these, I picked up two types, you know, Francine is the one who is very crude, very straightforward, down to earth. And she realizes much more than she lets go. And, and at, at some point, uh, says no to it all, which ends 
I don't know how it ends to her for her because I don't really never thought about what would happen to her later. Uh, but but at least gives a chance of getting out of it in uh, emotionally unscathed. Uh, you know, she doesn't uh, she doesn't have to subdue to be subdued to what um, to what subjected to what uh, uh, Veronique does. Claire, on the other hand, is manipulative. That that's another type of the girl who would thrive in Deer Park. You know, she realizes that's her chance. I will use it. You know, they use me. I can use them and I'll get a good marriage out of it. I'll get my dowry. I'll get my position. So she will not be emotionally hurt. She will get out of uh, the situation all she can get and disappear into the, you know, fog of history. So um, Veronique is not lucky that way. She 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 actually falls in love with the king. And, and uh, perhaps not surprisingly, he was a very handsome man by all accounts. Uh, and he was older and very, you know, he, he exuded power. So in a sense, she was a very easy prey emotionally. And that's what I chose to concentrate on. So Francine and Claire showed the, the other two possibilities of how girls responded to being at Deer Park. And what are they supposed to learn at this school? Uh, I think that, you know, deep down, it's a little bit of a sham, this whole thing. I think that the school is there to keep them busy and not asking questions and not wondering what they are for. That's a good cover. You know, if you think about it, it's like if you were, um, uh, you are trained to become a lady's maid. So, so uh, that's a pretty high, in, in the hierarchy of the servants, it's a very high position. And that can lead to, you know, good marriage, to certain wealth. Um, so, so that's a very plausible uh, goal for them. And for that, they have to learn to, you know, there's a lot of things they have to learn. They have to learn to dance. They they can practice music. They embroider. They read. They write. They, they learn how to behave at Versailles, which is the whole, with the etiquette, it's the whole, uh, whole but that's that's a whole, you know, that, need, that requires a school in a sense in order to be pulled off. So they learn that, but they are also kept, you know, because they're kept busy, they are also kept supervised of, of, at every moment. They don't have any free time to scheme or to realize what, what the situation is for them. Or, um, and therefore, you know, the, the, the idea is that they won't spend too much time there. The ideal Deer Park girl for Le Belle and Madame de Pompadour is a, a girl who, when, when they need when they need her, she's there, available at any time, at a day's notice, maybe spends one or two nights with the king and then disappears into the fog of history. That would be ideal. Well, Veronique doesn't. No, Veronique doesn't. And we do know from the very beginning, even from the back cover blurb on the book, that this is actually a story about two women. Uh, and we know that they are mother and daughter. And you mentioned that Veronique is based on the historical girl who got pregnant. So let's talk a bit about Marie-Louise, uh, whom we first meet as a six-year-old girl uh, who has been reclaimed from her nurse in the countryside and brought to Paris. So who is she? And what can you tell us about her as a personality, what she wants out of life and things like that? Well, 
when I thought about, you know, the, as I told you in the very beginning, my first image was that of a pregnant girl who is uh, who has to be taken care of, you know, a dear part girl who has to be taken care of. So the baby was there already. And and I was thinking about uh, what would she inherit? You know, that baby. I wanted a daughter. So I wanted Veronique to have a daughter. So what would the daughter inherit? So on the mother's side, you know, the, her beauty, her, her charm her ability to please people, but on the other hand, uh, certain resilience definitely as well, uh, and warmth, but um, she also has the father. The father is the king. And so there's something, I wanted something real about her. I wanted her to, and I also wanted to connect to historically the 15s, who who was a very reluctant king. And I read a lot about him and I found out a perfect, um, you know, my perfect detail, historical detail that I came across was that he always wanted to be a surgeon or a doctor. And he was fascinated by medicine. He was constantly giving uh, his courtiers some medical advice uh, solicited or not and sort of wanted to give that cure and then follow up on the cure and he always would he was fascinated by by anything related to medicine so I have that sense of okay so I want my uh, his daughter to inherit some of his of these characteristics so there's this certain regal bearing to her she does not she's she's not pliant she's not uh, submissive in a way her mother is from her father she inherits that uh certainty that who she is and of who she is and what she wants in life and her interest is also medical so the midwives um are there and 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 she is she, she will grow up among these midwives so I wanted, this is what, what I wanted for her, and this is how I developed the character. Yes, uh, well, we'll get back to the midwifery in a minute, because that's a really interesting element of the novel to me. What is expected of Marie? Why do they bring her to Paris, and what do they want from her once she gets there? Uh, again, I referred here to the historical sources about the the, the king's uh, children, you know, illegitimate children, and there was a lot of mention of it, like, that they will get some education. Uh, the girls uh, will be raised by, you know, sort of retired servants at Versailles. Uh, the, they will be educated or they will be, you know, by governesses or somebody in, in, in the palace here. I have a sister who, who does not. Uh, and that and, and they will be... Uh, uh, if they show any vocation, that would be wonderful because we can lock them up in a convent. And if they don't show vocation, they won't be forced to go into a convent. But then they, uh, you know, they will have a dowry, a fairly good dowry, and therefore they can be married and have a, you know, and just sort of again become. A, 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 we, we we won't ever hear of them again if that's what happened. Boys would be educated and taken into the army. Maybe some commission in the army would be bought for them. So the palace did not abscond, did not leave the children um, totally unsupported. There was some oversight. There was some oversight how they were treated and that the money was paid out to the guardians. So um, I wanted her to be, you know, so that was the... That's these were the details and sort of inherit that I used for 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 her all the time that Marie Louise is at Versailles. That's sort of she's playing out of the script from Deer Park Girls and their children. 
And one of the things that happens to her is that she herself becomes a midwife. And you mentioned why you included that element in her character, but midwifery is actually undergoing some significant changes in this period. So can you talk a little bit about what, you know, what role that story plays in the story or even just what we can learn about um, changing approaches to pregnancy and birth uh, because of this element? That was one of my most uh, wonderful discoveries. I mean, this book, I, this book is full of, of the moments of uh, in which I would say, oh, my God, you know, I wasn't aware that that's what's happening. I knew I needed a midwife because I knew that my Veronique is pregnant. My dear part girl will be pregnant. So I needed a midwife. And, and I didn't pay attention to that need for quite a while in the story until I was closing um, on on the delivery. It was a, and then I started looking around and saying, well, I would like to know a little bit more about 18th century uh, French midwives. And immediately, like within five minutes of it, I come across a, no- a book, a biography called The King's Midwife about of Madame de Caudray, uh, a woman who is connected to Louis XV because in 1959, she comes to Versailles and gives a public presentation to the king, Madame de Pompadour and other courtiers about uh, an invention that she thinks will revolutionize the teaching of midwifery in France. So that's all very well documented. The book is, the biography is called The King's Midwife. I read it with bated breath. And I thought, oh my God, I never was aware that French midwives were so powerful, so well educated. You know, you hear, if you, when you start reading about Madame de Caudray, you realize that uh, to become a midwife in Paris, especially, um, a, a young woman who, you know, would have to either apprentice for three years with, with an experienced midwife, but then attend lectures and autopsies and and get a lot of theoretical education and then pass a grueling exam in front of a body of 16 very august people and then be um, licensed and and even then after being licensed she'll have periodically sort of every month she has to sort of go back to the college to listen to lectures and to update her skills so um, I realized that that was not what was happening in other countries, you know, to that extent. But what Madame de Caudray did and what I used immediately in the in the novel is that she decided to empower young women um, by changing, making midwifery available. Uh, I mean, that edu- this well-educated licensed midwifery, not the typical one, you know, that uh, went through sort of the female uh, mother to daughter and maybe, you know, sort of uh, based on experience rather than knowledge. So she she wanted to travel all over France with her uh, teaching mannequin and with her book. She wrote a book about midwifery and organize these courses that would be very intensive courses with practical um, uh, part to it, which was practicing on the mannequin how to deliver babies. And and that's what she came to Louis XV with. She gave the presentation, which I actually described, you know, I had such fun inventing, you know, this in the novels, 
flushing it out and showing how it would, could have gone, knowing that the king was fascinated by everything medical. And then she, he, he supported her financially. And, and you know, she, she had the king's papers that allowed her, her to ask for support in provinces. And for over 20 years, she traveled all over France, delivered courses to such women who were probably not older than Veronique when she comes to Deer Park and Francine and Claire, but who are empowered, who after that course can become respected members of society, who would be valued by by their families, by, you know, by their parents, by their husbands, because they will bring money and prestige to the families. So, so I love that, you know, that, that the midwives introduced me to this other part of the 18th century, you know, the possibility that if you are, if, if, if you become a woman who is a professional woman, and if you have means of supporting yourself and expressing yourself and doing something useful, then suddenly you are empowered. You, you don't have to be the pawn of the, you know, the king or his helpers. So I was, I fell in love with the midwives. Absolutely. <laughs> they are wonderful characters. It's a really interesting part of the story. Marie-Louise uh, eventually marries someone who becomes involved with the reform and eventually the revolutionary movement. We know this from the very first scene, which I read in the introduction. So that part is not a spoiler. Uh, and I don't want to force you to say too much about the story because we want readers and listeners to find out for themselves. But what can you share about Pierre and his friends? And why did you want to extend the story into the revolution? Years. Um, well, Madame Collier lived until the 1995. I mean, she died uh, of natural causes during the terror. So I thought that that would be a good lifespan for the novel for me to sort of carry it to that moment. But I also, I'm, you know, in everything I write, I, I am also interested in in how this big history, big historical events affect the lives of people, everyday lives, and how, especially how women have to cope with it. You know, I, it's, you know, I grew up uh, in Poland. I, my, my mother, my grandmother lived through two world wars. My mother lived through one world war. And of course, the Soviet occupation. I always had, when I was growing up, I always thought that to become a grandmother, you have to have to go through two wars. And if you want to become a mother, you have to go through one big war. And I I was sort of waiting for mine to come. So I I think I'm very much interested in how women fare in these times of trouble, times of fighting, times of where everything collapses, where you have to live through revolutions, you know, the and and um, it was very interesting for me to see how Marie Louise would fare through that, and how midwives fare through that time. And the midwives, because you know there may be a revolution, but women still get pregnant; they still have to to have children. Um, they have to be taken care of, uh, calmed down, even if uh, there are executions in the street. You know, the midwife will sit with the new mother to be and try to calm her, make her comfortable, help her. So to me, it was a symbol of, of this healing um, and, 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 and persevering that women, many women have to do, like men, men too, but men also fight. The women are usually, um, especially in history, were, were 
were given another role, not so much to fight, but to maintain life, even under the hardest of circumstances. So it was very tempting to me. I would not have wanted to stop the novel earlier. I really wanted to see how Marie-Louise comes out of the worst, which is the terror. And of course, there is this uh, remarkable modern echo, which could not possibly have been predicted. But given what you just mentioned about your own family history, here we are in the middle of this crisis with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and women being caught up in it in maternity hospitals and things like that. Or having to leave with the the children while the husbands uh, stay behind, right? They have to sort of preserve the life of the family and the family. That that's a, it's it's a very important role. And and I know from my own family that women can be very strong. Um, they raised, you know, the women that who raised me were extremely brave and very very, you know, and I learned so much from them. And in a sense, the spirit is in the novel as well as as it was in the chosen maiden, who also you know touched upon the same thing living through the revolution so um so yes you know i i would not have stopped novel before that so are there other plot elements or characters that you would like to talk about that we haven't covered um i i think that um I, I, what i was trying to do is i was trying to um to give the reader a sense of how complex the past is and the past. So not so much specific characters, but the whole texture of life, the whole um, aspect of, you know, going to Versailles and not necessarily just walking through the beautiful glittering salons, but going underground, going into the kitchens, into the corridors and servants and see how life, the real life was unfolding in the past. What was, what kind of roles women could have played, what was possible, what was impossible. I, I think that for me that the places, the, um, that, they are always very, very important, um, and and the and the life, the sort of ordinary lives of very many people, who's uh, who who respond to what is happening on the top of uh, you know among the kings and queens and 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 generals and those who wage war or or make peace. So I think that that's what I would like to talk about to promise the reader that if you get into this novel you'll get a very very good sense of what it was to live in the corridors of Versailles but also in the streets of Paris during the revolution especially if you had to to go from house to house and have help help women um, deliver babies. So that that was uh, really very important for me. Well, that was such a wonderful summary. Normally I ask people what uh, they would like the readers to take away, but you've just answered that. So I'm going to move on and ask you, are you already working on something new? I'm one of these writers who cannot imagine life without writing. So yes, I the moment I close, I think it takes me a day before I need to have to eat to find some other book. So this time um, I am I'm still in the 18th century. And um, I, when I was I was writing several books about the 18th century, and there's a, a character called uh, Count Cagliostro, kind of a magician, a, a, a necromancer, a, a healer, a very very strange uh, character who pops up uh, at Versailles and the Winter Palace. You know, historically he's traveled all over Europe. And he married, of course, a very young woman who was 
14 when she married him and, and and I wanted to get into her and see what kind of you know who was she how did she fare next to this very strange flamboyant interesting and and infuriating man so this is where I'm at I'm trying to understand her and I'm trying to see where she will take me on on the journey through Europe through 18th century Europe but more or less at the same time you know because uh, um, it, I'm, which which helps because it gives me you know I already am in this world I was that's where I was when I was writing the School of Mirrors so I'm just sort of moving sideways into a different realm of the 18th century. That sounds fascinating. Um, I look forward to seeing that novel too. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Eva. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Eva Stashniak about the School of Mirrors. Find out more about her at www.evastashniak.com. That's E-V-A-S-T-A-C-H-N-I-A-K as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.